Well, look, um, we are in the middle of the series that we've called A Man After God's Own Heart, of those famous verses in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, where that is how David is described. And what we see in this passage today is, I think, David's heart. I love listening to people being um, interviewed on TV shows or radio. I'm told that the first TV um, interview that was ever done live on air was in 1951 by a guy called Joe Franklin. And the fact that we're some 70 years later, and whether it's Oprah Winfrey or Graham Norton or Michael Parkinson, whoever your kind of favorite interviewer is, the fact that it's such an enduring kind of medium phenomenon still, I think shows you know, just how much we engage with it. But the reason I think we love um, TV talk shows and talk shows in general is because when someone talks, particularly when the guard comes down a little bit, their heart is revealed. And I mention that because in this passage today, you might have noticed there's actually very, very little action. Most of the action happened in the end of 1 Samuel, and there's lots of action to come up in the future chapters of 2 Samuel. But we get a lot of talking, um, a lot of George or not a lot of war war, to put it that way, I suppose. And in this um, passage, as David talks, we see his heart revealed. And I suggest to you that as we see his heart revealed, we see what it is that makes him such a compelling figure why it is that he is one of the giants of history. But more than that, as we see his heart revealed, we're going to see it foreshadowing great David's greatest son and the glorious and complex but wonderful heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's more just a cursory interest for us because personal formation, um, that is about you know, the type of people we're becoming, is foundationally an issue of the heart. The well-known verses, Proverbs 4.23, reminds us that the heart is the wellspring of life. It shapes who you are. It shapes what you do. It shapes the choices you make. And therefore, the key issue in personal formation is, what is your heart becoming like? And I want us to see in this passage the type of complex yet united heart which should be an aspiration for us to be formed into as we seek to be formed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look, let's look at what we see about David's heart here, and we're going to see four headings. First of all, David's heart of justice, then David's heart of compassion, then David's heart of humility, and lastly, David's heart of wisdom. Let's start firstly by looking at David's heart of justice, and we're in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now, it's just worth catching you up a little bit on some of the things that have happened that lead up to this um, report of Saul's death. So just to recap you, David has long since been anointed the king of Israel, though we see ascending to take the throne in Judah um, in uh, the first part of chapter 2. He's been anointed king for a number of years now. But Saul has refused to give up his throne, despite the fact that he's been clearly told by Samuel that the Lord has rejected him as king for his unrepentant sin. And that's left David kind of on the run with Saul pursuing him. And we've seen that David has been evading Saul twice. He's had the opportunity himself to kill Saul, but has always restrained his hand. As he put it, he would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, which makes the incident with the report from the Amalekite so important. Whilst he's on the run, outcasts of kind of the general um, society kind of come to him, and eventually David forms a kind of 600-man strong militia, and he um, eventually crosses over to, through the western border of Israel into the Philistine territory, into Philistia. And there he distinguishes himself as a kind of working in, in the army of King Achish, the Philistine leader, um, David offering himself and his men as a kind of private militia and um, distinguished in their military service. 
They do such a great job for the Philistine king and serve with such great honor and integrity that he offers them the residence down in the south of the Philistine territory in a place called Ziklag, and that's where David and his men and their wives all set up shop. Then comes the time when Achish is going to go um, to war against Saul. And so David, because he's pledged himself in honor and service to the king of the Philistines, goes all the way up three days' travel from the south of Philistia to the north of Philistia to go to war with the king of the Philistines against Saul. But perhaps not unsurprisingly, a number of the generals of the Philistines are a bit uneasy about this. And they say, can he really be trusted? I mean, he is, after all, an Israelite. And so the king relents and sends him back away all the way down to Ziklag whilst the king goes off to war. They arrive down in Ziklag, which is why I'm emphasizing the day's journey, to find out that the Amalekites have raided this town. And in raiding the town, they've carted off all of the wives and all of the children and all of the property. David then pursues them with his militia. They overrun them. They get victory in the Lord's name, and they manage to bring back their wives and all the property. And then whilst they're there, he then hears of the death of Saul. Saul has been defeated by the Philistines, and we are told a very different account to the one that this young man tells. We are told that Saul is mortally wounded in battle, and being mortally wounded, not wanting to be captured, he falls on his own sword and dies. And that leads us to 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. And this man then tells David that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David asks the young man how Saul has died. And the man gives the response in verse 9. Then he, Saul, that is, said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and I brought them here to you, my Lord. Now, the guy's kind of playing quite a subtle game here, isn't he? He's trying to feel David out a little bit and what's going on, but you can see what he's doing. He's trying to take credit for killing Saul, and he's also trying to take credit for being the kind of messenger who transfers power from one king to another by handing him the crown and the band on his arm. Those are the kind of symbols of his reign. And he's telling a lie, by all accounts, if one Samuel is to be believed, because he wasn't actually the one that killed Saul, but he exaggerates it because he thinks there's something in it for him. Now, just pause a moment and think about David. He's been fleeing from Saul for years. Saul has been totally unjust in his pursuit of David. David has done nothing wrong. And finally, David hears of Saul's death, which means now that he can ascend the throne. So what is going through his heart? He must be feeling a sense of relief, right? I mean, he would be forgiven for feeling a sense of, well, he's finally got his just desserts. He, he deserved this. And then there's the, the nervous political issue now that there's obviously a vacuum of power. This man is effectively in front of all of David's men, pledging his allegiance to David and kind of showing, really, the type of loyalty that surely a new king wants. You know, I was prepared to kill someone for you, even the king, and put you in power. So David's feeling all of these mixed emotions, a sense of relief, a sense of righteous indignation. Finally, he's dead, probably mourning as well because he's heard Jonathan has died and Jonathan was a close friend of his. But then also this tenuous political situation. So what could he do? What will he do? Well, look at the heart of justice. 
He has one primary concern here above all. Verse 15, David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Now, I wonder what you make of this. I mean, it's a bit bloodthirsty, isn't it? And you're kind of thinking, justice, Pete, really? Isn't that a bit of a stretch? Well, you need to remember, this is the ancient world. And the principal person who would distribute justice, meet out justice in the ancient world, was the king. He was the kind of head of the judiciary, if you like. So it's well within David's power to give this type of sentence. But also remember David's own conduct. He hasn't raised his hand against Saul in the past, though he had two previous opportunities to do so. And so this man should not have done that. You do not raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. But he lied about it and boasted in it, and David just said, well, I'll take you at your word, and meted out the just punishment for that. In other words, David was not concerned with selfish ambition. He wasn't concerned with some kind of petty revenge. His heart reveals that he's concerned with justice. I know it's a bit more bloody than we might like, but it's what it reveals. And I think this is so significant for us today when quite often now in public discourse with our political leaders or our social leaders or when we see institutions you know, caught up in scandals, we don't see enough of a concern for justice. What we see is a concern to win, to win at all costs, I suggest to you. It matters less who's right and who's wrong. It matters less about doing the honorable thing if you've actually done something wrong. It matters far more about winning the political debate winning the social debate, protecting the name of the institution than about doing what is right. Not so with David. Arguably, this actually puts him at a disadvantage, but it's the just thing to do, his heart of justice. Secondly, though, and rather surprisingly, I want us to now see, as he takes up his lament for Saul and Jonathan, David's heart of compassion in verses 17 to 27. We didn't have these verses read just for brevity, for time, because we didn't quite have time, but do go away and read them. But in these verses, David authentically and openly laments the death of Saul and Jonathan. Verse 18, he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament, this song of lament of the bow. In other words, he doesn't just lament it himself, but he actually composes a song and a poem and orders that everybody sings it, everybody laments. He gives space for grief. And in these verses, we get at the top and tail of it, the famous you know, phrase, how the mighty have fallen. He weeps, verse 24, he's very clear, for Saul and for Jonathan and calls others to do likewise. But it is interesting, he doesn't whitewash Saul's behavior. He doesn't commit kind of hagiography, that means making someone look better as you remember them than they really were. No, he doesn't, you know, kind of um, start to lie about what Saul was like, but he does say that because Saul was Israel's first king and also because Saul was a man, he's worthy of being mourned. And so he shows a real and profound compassion and mourning for him. This is, I suggest to you, David at his best. Swift in pursuing justice, deeply moved and compassionate when faced with loss and grief. And I guess the point needs to be made that very often you don't see those two attributes together, do you? Often, if you know people, maybe people in your life, maybe you're this type of person who is kind of quite a truth teller, you know, you get, you get very a righteous indignation when you're watching the news and you see the misconduct on the news, and so, you, you know, you want to pursue justice. 
But we know, don't we, that people like that can often have a hard edge to them. It's like they, they gird themselves with their armor for justice, but they forget to take the armor off and show the softer sides of them. On the other hand, some people are lovely and they're, they're compassionate and they're empathetic and their hearts go out to people and they show sadness, but they won't necessarily steel themselves to do the right thing when it's hard and call it out, right? But David's just fascinated because he's complex. He's not simplistic. He's not a cartoon character. He's both. He both cares about justice and he's also compassionate. I've just finished watching Reacher, the Amazon Prime um, TV series. It's a very sophisticated drama with a very complex plot line. For those of you who've watched it, you'll know. Um, and what's particularly amusing, by the way, is the fact that Tom Cruise plays Jack Reacher right in the films, and he's five foot seven and Diddy. But now I've understood that actually in the, um, in the books, Jack Reacher is supposed to be a six foot five giant behemoth who can kind of rip people apart um, you know, with his bare hands. And they've gone for that type of character rather than recapitulating a dwarf kind of Reacher in terms of Tom Cruise in this one. But Reacher in the um, TV series, he's a great character. I know it kind of, you know, it ticks the kind of revenge type TV series movie box, but he's not a complex character. Um, someone reminded me this morning, the most compassion he shows in the whole of the TV series is for a dog. Um, he doesn't really show much compassion for anybody who does anything wrong. But not so with David. David is complex. He cares about justice, but he also has a deep compassion for others. I wonder, let the Spirit minister to you. What are you like? Are you a person who really cares about justice, but do you sometimes forget to take the armor off? Has your heart become so hardened in pursuit of justice that you've lost and you're no longer any more able to remember what it is that you're fighting for? Or are you deeply compassionate and you feel the sadness of the world, but are you prepared to do something about it? Mourning is important, but so is action as well. David is both just and compassionate. Now let's look at David's heart of humility in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. With Saul out of the way, David must be thinking, now is the time for me to ascend to the throne. And we get a kind of a forerunner here with the people of Judah. But look at his humility. No presumption. No, I'm going to take what's mine. No, I've waited long enough. Look at him, verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David took the men with them, and they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah, verse 4. In other words, fascinating to do a compare and contrast here with Saul. Saul, when he became king, presumed to not inquire of the Lord in the matters that had been prescribed to him. He actually presumed to take on the priestly mantle, the prophet's mantle, of Samuel when Samuel was away and to offer sacrifices, which was not for him to do. And he did not inquire of the Lord. But David, even though the time is now, inquires the Lord not once but twice, do you notice? In other words, he won't do anything without the Lord's explicit sanction. This is humility. No self-assured, I know what to do. No, get out of my way. The crown is mine. No, no, no. It's hard to read this um, without thinking of Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, that is God, and he will make your paths straight. David is doing this live, real time, under pressure. That's what's so impressive about it. There's a real tangible humility. 
Saul presumed to do what he wanted. David won't do anything without waiting on the Lord. Saul exalted himself. David humbles himself and says, Lord, you lead me. You show me, Lord. Now, I wonder what this looks like for you. We can sometimes be quite vague about humility. You know, someone shows a general modesty in their life, a kind of backward and coming forward type personality. We say, oh, they're very humble. But can I suggest to you, this is what humility really looks like before the Lord. To humble yourself and say, Lord, I'm a creature. I can't know. I'm limited. I don't know. I need you to lead me. You to reveal your will to me. Lord, show me to really pray and ask and believe that the Lord will lead you in that way. To search the Scriptures and say, is this right, Lord? Not to arrogate yourself above the Scriptures and say, I think I know better. And actually, that bit of Scriptures, we can take it or leave it, really, because it's probably outdated for today. No, but to humble yourself and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? This is a humble heart. And then lastly... In verses 5 to 7, David's heart of wisdom. Again, as with the seemingly opposite virtues of justice and compassion, I want you to notice humility and wisdom here. This is probably why Jesus urges his followers to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. Because often those who are gentle, who are humble, are not particularly wise are particularly shrewd, and often those who are wise and shrewd, who kind of can see the way through, can trust in themselves too much and don't humble themselves before the Lord. Not so with David. Look at how David handles a very tricky situation. This, um, this place of Jabesh-Gilead is the first place that Saul kind of acts and delivers when they're under threat. It happens early on in Saul's reign. So they're kind of staunch Saul supporters. And so they are mourning, understandably, um, the loss of Saul. How will David then handle this tricky political situation with kind of the power base of Saul and then mourning Saul? What will he do? Well, he hands it with great care, great wisdom, great diplomacy. Verse 6, he says to them, May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. He's not insecure about the fact that they're mourning the death of Saul. He doesn't just kind of wade in and say, you've got to choose, given the ultimatum, how attractive that often feels to a young man, but how rarely that plays out very well for them. No, he's, he blesses them. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you, that I'm secure enough to bless you too. But he very carefully just reminds them Saul, your master, is dead, and I have been anointed king over them. Just a reminder, giving them time to process it, and he moves on. Just a, a masterpiece in diplomacy as well. So we've seen David's justice and his compassion. We've seen his humility and his wisdom. Let's draw this all together. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that when you take all of those together, what you get is a picture of a complex person, not a, a 2D cartoonish type person, but we get a complex person here who is not what we would expect if we were to write him. It, it's well known in literature that it's very difficult to describe um, fictional characters with any complexity. We too easily default to the kind of Jack Reacher type personality stereotypes. But David is not like that because he's a real person, just and compassionate, humble and wise, and all at the same time held in a kind of careful unity. But lest we get carried away, we must realize that David is not perfect. 
and his heart is not perfect. There's a little hint of it. Chapter 2, verse 2, David went up there with his two wives. That should give us pause for thought. Two wives is clearly prohibited under God's law. He seeks God's will so carefully. Has he not reflected on the Scriptures that it should only be one wife? I think it's sown there deliberately by the narrator of 2 Samuel just to kind of give us this moment for pause for thought. After all, what is it eventually that leads to David's downfall? Is it not his lust? His lust for Bathsheba? Is this not an unchecked sin in his heart in the early days that will grow to be something far more serious later on? In other words, David is not perfect. And actually, some of the wonderful gifts we see here of his diplomacy We'll see the shadow side later on in the incident with Bathsheba without giving too many things away as he tries to carefully maneuver the political military landscape to cover up his sin. Come more um, for that in weeks to come. In other words, this is not be like David. No, this is rather about the way that David's heart is, though imperfect, a heart after God's own heart. And it foreshadows great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has a heart perfectly after the Lord's own heart. No shadows in it, no distorted desires in it at all, full of justice, but also full of compassion, perfectly humble, but also wonderfully wise. That's why the point here is not look at David, but rather look through David to King David's greater son, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who shows these diverse but united virtues in his heart in such a way that is so attractive and so surprising. The theologian Jonathan Edwards, um, who sadly showed a lack of concern for justice in his keeping of slaves, preached a wonderful and quite famous sermon called The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. The Puritans really knew how to give natty titles for sermons, didn't they? And what he meant by this, by the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, what he's saying is the way that excellencies or virtues in Jesus Christ come together that you wouldn't expect to see together in a, in a normal person, if you like. Infinite majesty, but perfect humility. A passionate concern for justice, but also a wonderful compassion as well as he grieves you know, over the nation of Israel. A perfect security and sense of his mission such that he will not be put off course, but also a tenderness and a gentleness that means he's not harsh and he's able to restore those who've been bruised and battered by the world. That's why he's described not only as a lion, but also a lamb. How can a lion be a lamb? How can he have the heart of a lion and yet the tenderness of a lamb? He is both. And the point is that the one never plays off against the other in Jesus, but the one enforces the other, reinforces the other, unites the other. And so he is both to be worshipped and adored such that all creation bows at his name, but he allowed himself to descend lower and lower and lower, being stripped naked and dying on a cross. This is the perfect one with a heart after the Lord's own heart, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the last few minutes, I want to apply this in three ways. First of all, to assure you. Secondly, to attract you to Jesus Christ. And finally, to encourage you to be like Jesus Christ. You can remember it was two A's and a B. I wanted three A's, but I couldn't think of a third A. So two A's and a B. Um, assure you, attract you, and be like Jesus. Let's start with, two, with the first one, to assure you. Very often, people feel that because Jesus has such a high standard, such a passion for justice, 
that therefore you feel like I can't come to him with my sin, right? After all, if he is the Holy One of Israel, if he is the one who sees all the thoughts of my own heart, then how can I come to him? Such people often have a strong sense of the fact that there will be a day when the Lord will open the books of life and he will make known all of the misdeeds and all of the thoughts of our hearts and all of the words we've spoken in secret and everything will be laid bare and it will be. And when we start to reflect on that, we think, goodness, how can I possibly come and draw near to such a person, to Jesus Christ? But you need to know that Jesus is not just only, but he's also deeply compassionate. Because where do you see Jesus' infinite justice most clearly displayed? Not at the last judgment day, but the first one on the cross. Because it's on the cross when he shows how much he cares about justice that he will not let it allow, allow it to be swept under the carpet. He cares so much about justice that he will die for it. And yet at the same time as he dies for it, he is also showing his compassion, is he not? As he turns to that thief on the cross who says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he gives him every assurance and says, not how dare you, I know what you've done, I see all things. No, he speaks those words of tender compassion. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. My friend, if you have that tender conscience and you, you tend to beat yourself up, you tend to rehearse your sins and go over and over and over them again, you tend to fear what it will be like, will you be ashamed at that last day, hear Jesus' compassion to you. If you trust in him, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He, the one who died for you, gives you every reassurance. So when you sin, don't do that silly thing we all do, which is I just need to give Jesus some time to cool off. I better just have a few good days first. Let me get my quiet times back on track or something. No, that's when you need him most. He's the friend of sinners. He's died for you. Flee to him. Run to him. Go to him. He is infinitely just, but he's also infinitely compassionate. And he will welcome you with open arms, just like the father does to the prodigal. So return to him. Don't stay away from him. Be assured. Well, you say, you don't know what I've done. I don't feel I can forgive myself for my sin. <laughs> Let me say to you, if you can't forgive yourself for your sin, then let Jesus show you the way. He has forgiven you for your sin. And my friend, as wonderful as you are, he knows a lot better than you. Forgive yourself to assure you. Secondly, to attract you to Jesus Christ. One of the things that marks out um, precious jewels is that once they are taken out of rocks, of course, they're, they're hoon and they're cut so that they are faceted, multifaceted. And there's a reason for that, so that you can have a diamond or a sapphire or a ruby or some other precious you know, stone. As you hold it up to the light, you turn it, you get different glints off it as each different facet catches the light in different ways. That's what it means to be multifaceted. And so they can become, you know, you don't get bored of them because you turn them and see a new aspect, a new light. It catches the sun in a new way. Jesus is not one-dimensional. He's not a cartoon. He was real. He is real. And he's multifaceted. And so, therefore, that's partly the way to find him to being so attractive, to say, my goodness, he's just, yes, but look at his compassion. He's majestic, yes, oh, but look at his humility. He's wise, yes. Oh, but look at his grace. In other words, what do you think we're going to be doing in eternity? We're going to be spending eternity rejoicing in the multifaceted beauty of the, the jewel of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, the pearl of great price. I know that doesn't work because pearls are circular. Anyway, let that one go, right? 
Because as we turn Jesus Christ in the light of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see all the facets glinting in the sun of His perfection, aren't we? That's what we're going to be enjoying. So if you have started becoming bored with Jesus, you start thinking, I know Jesus, remind yourself that the most common reaction to Jesus in the New Testament is surprise, because He's just not what you would expect. He's just not like any other person you've ever met. If you think, oh yes, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, then hear Him correct you in your sin. If you think, oh Jesus, He's a bit harsh sometimes, then hear Him speak words of comfort over you and say, come to me, all who you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You have never got Jesus pegged. He's so different. He's so surprising. He's so beautiful. So enjoy him. Spend time with him. Pray to him. Meditate on him. Sing songs to him and about him. Talk with others about him. Let's not be ashamed to do that be attracted to Him. Two A's, and lastly a B. I want to urge you to be like Christ. Notice the order, be assured first, be attracted second. I'm not laying this as a burden on you first. This comes afterwards. As you spend time with someone that you really love, you can't help but become a little bit like them. Uh, the story is often told of my family, of my brother when he was younger. He went through a stage of spending a lot of time with my um, granddad, who's now long since died. And granddad used to wear a flat cap. And one day my brother, kind of age eight or nine, came home from spending time with my granddad and he was wearing this flat cap that was far too big for him and looked faintly ridiculous. But of course, Mark did that because he loved him. And he enjoyed spending time with him. And so he inevitably became a bit more like him. How much more with the Lord Jesus Christ? You want to know what spiritual formation is about? Well, it can be more complex than this, but it's not, you know, it doesn't get in some sense any less foundational than this. It's about being with Jesus and then becoming more and more like Jesus. I'm thrilled to see in lots of evangelical circles that there is a revival of interest of spiritual disciplines, spiritual formation. I think that's a wonderful thing. But let me just say one thing really clearly. There is no spiritual formation if it does not lead you to Christ. In other words, you can do all the spiritual disciplines in the world, you can remember all of ancient prayers, and you can do the Ignatian examine, and all these things, they're good things if they lead you to Christ, if they help you to enjoy Christ, if they help you to become more like Christ. But any spiritual discipline without Christ is worthless. So therefore, let's be formed. Let's be a community that takes personal formation seriously. Let's share ways of growing in Christ, practical ways. Let's encourage one another in those spiritual disciplines, but let's always do the check. Is it helping you to become more like Christ? If you go on retreats, don't just retreat from the world, but retreat from the world to spend time with Christ. When you spend your Sabbath rest, don't just spend a Sabbath rest because you're knackered, though that's a good thing, but spend a Sabbath rest so that you can refresh yourself with God's people in Christ. Even memorizing Scripture, it is possible, isn't it, to do it just to get more knowledge and to show off, but no, memorize Scripture, read Scripture, meditate on Scripture because it's the Scriptures that tell you about Christ and enjoy Him and love Him. And then by God's grace, as the Spirit works through that, you will become more like Christ and be like Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for these scriptures and in this foreshadowing 
of Jesus' heart, shown in the heart of great King David. We see the diverse virtues of Jesus' heart, his justice, his compassion, his humility, his wisdom. And if we were to read through Scripture, we'd see many, many more of his virtues. Help us to see him as he really is in the power of the Spirit. Help us to be assured that uh, he is the one who forgives sinners like us. Help us be attracted to him and to his heart. And as we're attracted to his heart, may we become more and more like him, formed in our innermost being, in the image of him who has saved us and called us. And we ask it for his namesake. Amen.